What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. we study through the Gospel of John, something we want to keep in mind is the main reason why John wrote this Gospel. And the main reason wasn't to give us every single detail about the life of Jesus and all that he did. Uh, Actually, at the end of John's Gospel, he tells us, you know, if he were to do that, uh, we'd be studying this Gospel for quite a long time, probably the rest of our lives. Because notice what John says, the very last verse of John, chapter 21, verse 25, it says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John realizes, hey, you know what? I'm picking certain things because I have a certain purpose in writing this gospel. I'm not writing everything that Jesus did because if I wrote them one by one, I mean, it would just fill volumes and volumes and volumes of books. And so we need to to keep that in mind as we're looking at this. But John tells us the main reason why he wrote this gospel. And it's important to note because, you know, as we look at the details, as we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, it's important to kind of take a step back and remember, you know, what's the main purpose? What's the big picture? Why is John writing this to begin with? And he tells us very clearly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The main reason that John writes the gospel, the the reason that he chooses the I am statements of Jesus, the reason he chooses specific miracles of Jesus is because he has one main purpose, and that main purpose is to reveal that Jesus is God. And his ultimate goal is that people who read this would discover that truth and that by believing in Jesus, they would have eternal life because of that belief. And so it shouldn't surprise us that over and over again, we see the subject of Jesus's deity. The fact that Jesus is God comes before us time and time again as we look at this gospel. And maybe sometimes you're thinking, well, wait a second, haven't we already heard that? Haven't we already discussed that? Well, the whole point is, yes, we have, but John keeps attacking that, keeps bringing it to our attention. Why? That's the main purpose. Everything's coming back to this. If you leave with nothing else through this book, he wants you to know for sure that Jesus truly is God. So as we come to the end of chapter 10 this morning, we're going to see this theme that we've seen many times before come before us again, the deity of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at that once again, maybe from a little different perspective. You know, the deity of Jesus really is one of the most important things to personally understand and more importantly, to personally accept yourself. But it's also very important to be able to explain it 
to others. So you might say, you know, I've heard this a lot. I know that Jesus is God, but you know, if someone who didn't believe that had a conversation with you, would you feel confident in being able to explain why Jesus is God, the importance of him being God? And so not only do you want to know it for yourself and accept it for yourself, but my challenge for you is also to be able to share it with others. Now in our culture today, you know, Jesus is attacked in many different areas excuse me, but one of the biggest areas and most significant areas, he's attacked in his deity. And there are three main reasons why there's this constant attack on Jesus's deity. The first reason is because people don't want the authority of Jesus over their life. If Jesus is God, if he is who he claims to be, guess what? Then he has authority over your life. Why? Because he's a creator. He created you, which gives him the authority over your life. And for many people in our culture today, maybe you were one of them. I know I was. You don't want someone else to have authority over your life. You want authority over your own life. You want to be able to determine for yourself these things. And so, you know, a lot of people, they don't want Jesus to be God because then they are no longer the authority of their life. And that is not something that they're willing to accept. So they reject Jesus as God so they can reject his authority. The second reason why there's this attack on Jesus's deity is because people don't want Jesus's standard over their life. You see, because Jesus is God, he is the one who gets to make the standard. He gets to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful, what is godly, what is true, what is false. You know, we live in a culture where people say, no, 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 I want to be the one who establishes that standard. I want to be the one who gets to say what is true and what is not. And actually in our culture now, truth is relative because I can determine what's true for me. You can determine what's true for you. And they can completely be opposite of one another, but everyone kind of gets to determine their own own truth. Why? Because we don't want an absolute standard by a God who tells us what's right and wrong, because then I have to live by that standard. I have to be held up to that standard, and people don't want that. They want to be able to say, well, wait a second, I want to say this isn't sin, and I can do it. And I want to be able to say that I, I can pursue this as well. I don't want God to give me his standard. I want it to be determinate for myself. And so people will reject the deity of Jesus because they want to establish their own standard. The third reason why there's this attack on Jesus's deity is because people don't want to accept or don't want the acceptance of Jesus as the basis of their salvation, as the basis of their relationship with God, as the basis of their entrance into heaven. They don't want that to be the, what, what it ultimately comes back to. I don't want to have to accept Jesus in order for these things to happen. I want to find my own way. I want there to be many roads that lead to heaven and I can choose which one it is. You know, whether it be me and my good works or, or me doing this or that, I don't want it have to be based on my acceptance of Jesus and belief in him. Jesus is God. And if that's the case, then what he says about himself is true, that he is the only way to heaven. That's the only way to be saved. And so rejecting that is something that many people unfortunately do. You know, that they're... These three main reasons why people attack the deity of Jesus is because people don't want the authority of Jesus over their life. They don't want the standard of Jesus over their life. They don't want the acceptance of Jesus as the basis of their salvation. But here's the reality. When people get to this place, it just emboldens them to do something that maybe you have been guilty of before you became a Christian. It emboldens you to say, you know what, I'm going to remove Jesus as God of my life, and I'm going to replace him with myself. 
You know, that's typically where a lot of people come to. I want to be the God of my own life, to establish the authority, the standard, the reason for my eternity. I want to be in that role. I want to be in that place. And a lot of people in our culture today, they're in that place. But here's the problem. That place leads them to a real bad place. You see, they accept this lie that, no, 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 I can remove Jesus as the God of my life and place myself on the throne and think that, yeah, that's going to get me to heaven or, yeah, that's going to be something that's going to end well for me. But the Bible teaches very clearly, no, the only place that leads is hell. You, you remove the one person who can get you to heaven and put yourself in that place, then ultimately when you're trying to establish your own authority standards, uh, your own acceptance of, of what's going to get you to eternity, it ultimately leads you to hell. Because there's only one God, only one authority, only one standard established, or there's only one way to heaven, and that is through Jesus. Any other way is not a way that's going to get you there. So the deity of Jesus is something that our culture constantly is attacking, and as believers, we need to recognize that. Personally, we need to know the importance of the deity of Jesus, know, you know, that it's true, but also know how do we communicate that to this culture that is rejecting that reality. So as we finish John chapter 10 this morning, we're going to start with a clear statement that Jesus makes about his own deity, clearly saying that I am God. And then we're going to see the response of the religious leaders who reject the statement of Jesus that he is God. And then we're going to see a defense of Jesus on behalf of his statement. He's going to defend his deity to the religious leaders. And then we're going to finish with coming back to a person that we thought maybe left the scene because he's dead. But we're actually going to see the lasting impact of John the Baptist and how that influences people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, last week, we concluded the conversation that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And remember, they come to Jesus and they say, you know what? Tell us plainly whether or not you're the Messiah. Tell us plainly if this is the case. And Jesus responds with, I've been telling you all along. I've been telling you over and over, but you won't believe me. And one of the main reasons you won't believe me is because you are not my sheep. But then Jesus goes on to share a wonderful thing that he as the good shepherd does for his sheep. He gives them eternal life. He keeps them from going to hell and no one can snatch them out of his hands. We spent a good amount of time last week looking at that wonderful truth. And that's where we ended there in verse 29 with Jesus making this wonderful statement of what he the good shepherd does for his sheep. And as we come to verse 30 this morning, Jesus is going to make this bold declaration revealing his deity and that's where we pick up this morning john 10 verse 30 says this i and my father are one you know this is such an important statement that jesus makes here but before we get into what he's declaring i want us to note two things that he's not saying because there have been two big misinterpretations of Jesus' statement here that have led to some pretty big heresies uh, throughout church history. And so I want to make sure that we understand what he's saying, but also understand what he is not saying. The first misinterpretation of this statement of Jesus is that Jesus was claiming to be the Father. This wrong interpretation led to this false belief that Jesus is saying there is one God and only one person in the Godhead. 
So the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you know, they're all just one person. And that ultimately it's called modalism that, you know, he can kind of just, all right, I'm going to come as the Father today and I'm going to come as the Son today and the Spirit today. But I'm just one person is what, you know, people are saying. Jesus is declaring here that he is the Father. Now, ultimately, you need to understand this is denying the Trinity, for those of you who don't know, the Trinity is very clear in Scripture where it says there is one God, but in three persons. The person of the Father, the person of the Son, Jesus, and the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this is denying the Trinity, a very big heresy uh, that went through the church and still is in the church today. It's gone the different names. Now you see it under the name of oneness or Jesus only. Uh, there's different things that kind of keep you know surfacing, but they're all a denial of the true God of the Bible. And so that is not what Jesus is declaring here. And, you know, this is something where it's important when you realize, you know what, the original language of the New Testament was not English. And so when we read it in English and you hear what Jesus says, you can understand why someone might conclude, yeah, Jesus is saying he's the father. But when you recognize the original language that John wrote this in was Greek. And when you look at how the Greek language was written, you would never conclude that Jesus is saying that he is the father. It wouldn't make any sense at all. In the Greek, when Jesus says, I and my father, it uses a plural verb, meaning we are. This is speaking of two distinct persons. It would never be associated as, oh, this is just one person. So in the Greek, it wouldn't make sense that Jesus is saying that, hey, I am God. Also in the Greek, when Jesus says, are one, there, there's a gender here that could be used. Uh, it could be neuter or it could be masculine. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know what that means. Well, let me tell you. The reason it's important to understand that if it was masculine, it would mean that Jesus and the Father were one and the same person. But that is not what John uses here. He uses the uh, gender neuter, which is meaning that Jesus and the Father are the same essence, the same substance, but not the same person, which is exactly what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. They're all the one God of the same essence, same substance, but three unique persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So in the Greek language, it's clear that Jesus is claiming to be God, but also claiming to be distinctly different from the Father. Well, this leads us to the second misinterpretation of this statement, an even worse one. Some people are claiming that, you know, what Jesus is saying here is that he is only the same purpose as the Father. So he has the same purpose in life. So that he's not God at all. That they're claiming that Jesus wasn't saying that he was God. He was just saying he has the same purpose as God. And, you know, once again, if you look at the Greek, you realize this is not what Jesus meant in any way, shape, or form. But this wrong interpretation denies Jesus' deity completely. The other one says Jesus is God, but in one person. This one says Jesus isn't God at all. And so both of those are clearly wrong. What Jesus is declaring is that I am God, but I am distinct from the Father. And one of the best ways to determine, well, what is Jesus saying is what did his listeners understand him to be saying at the time? And when you see the response of the religious leaders, it becomes abundantly clear that Jesus was declaring himself to be God because their response shows that they understood he was saying that he was God. Notice how the religious leaders respond when Jesus says, I and my father are one in verses 31 through 33. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, many good works have I shown you from my father. 
for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. Notice the response here of the religious leaders. Jesus says, I and my father are one. And what do they do? They go and they pick up stones in order to stone him to death. Well, wait a second. Why are they seeking to do that? Well, according to Jewish law, if someone declared themselves to be God who was not God, that was blasphemy and the punishment was stoning to death. And so they're believing that Jesus isn't God. He's declaring himself to be God. And so they pick up stones to kill him. And they make real clear that this is the reason they're doing it. Because when Jesus poses the question to them, their response to him is that he is um, ultimately claiming to be God. You know, someone being man, making himself out to be God. And so the Jews clearly thought that Jesus was making this statement that he is God. And in their response to that, they want to kill him. Now, I want you to try to picture the scene here because, you know, you have this angry mob that we already looked at last time. Our religious leaders, they surround Jesus. They pose this question. Tell us plainly whether or not you're the Messiah. Hey, I've been telling you all along that I'm the Messiah. You guys won't believe me. Uh, and then he goes on to share some things about him being the good shepherd and how he you know, deals with the sheep. And then he finishes with, I and the father are one. You know, I've already told you I'm the Messiah, but guess what? I am God. And then they just start freaking out. They pick up stones. They're surrounding him. They're ready to kill him. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes. I want you to try to picture that situation. You're there. You're surrounded by these angry religious leaders. They got stones in their hands. They're ready to kill you. What would you say? How would you feel? What would your response be in that kind of circumstance? I'm sure many of us would be quite frightened, thinking, all right, this is it. Yeah, I better get myself ready to meet my maker. You know, these stones are coming my way. You know, you might be trying to think of, well, what can I say to keep them from, from throwing stones at me? But, you know, there'd be fear, there'd be stress, there'd be maybe a little bit of freaking out going on here. But, you know, I think it's, it's interesting here that Jesus is just completely calm. They got their stones, they're ready to throw them at him. And in this calm way, he just poses a question to them. And notice the question that he asks them. Many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Now remember back at the beginning of this conversation, which we started last week, in verse 25, Jesus connects the words that he speaks about himself, so saying that I am God, with the works that he has done. He wants to help them see there's this clear connection that I'm not just saying something, I'm also working and living it to prove that what I say is true. He told them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I told that I do in my father's name, they bear witness of me. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, I'm not just bearing witness of myself with my words, but my works also bear witness of me. What I do, all these miraculous things that I've done are clear proof that I am who I claim to be, God. And so now Jesus comes back to this very good argument. And notice near he says, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? <clears throat> so what Jesus is doing is, hey, showing that the works that I have done reveal who I am. It reveals that I am God. His works reveal that he and the father are one. 
And so he wants to know, hey, for which one of these works? Was it the, the healing of that blind man? You know, what, what, what miracle are you killing me for? You know, what sign that I've done are you stoning me for? And, and they're kind of like, oh, wait a second. Jesus is wanting them to, to connect his works and his words together, but they, they don't understand what he's ultimately saying. Notice their response. For a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Oh, no, no, we're not stoning you for a good work that you've done. We're stoning you for what you said. You said you were God, and that's why we're going to kill you. We're not stoning you for healing people. We're not stoning you, you know, for feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We're not stoning you for turning water into wine. We're not stoning you for all these good works you've done. We're stoning you because of the words that you've said. But they're missing the point. Jesus is trying to help them see, no, no, no. You have to connect the two together because my words and my works ultimately demonstrate that I'm God. And so if you're going to throw stones at me, you better be able to say which works were not of God. You better be able to claim that these things weren't of God because what I say about myself is backed up by the works that I do. And so that's why he's saying this to them. Which, which works are you going to stone me for? But they don't get it. They're saying, no, no, we're, we're, there's no connection to your words and your works. They're, they're distinct. And Jesus say, no, they're not distinct. Well, since the religious leaders don't get this connection between Jesus' works and words, he's going to take them back to their own scriptures, to the law itself, to help them see, well, wait a second. It's not right of you to stone me for claiming that I'm God. Notice what he says in verses 34 through 38. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I, ha I said you were God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I'm the son of God. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I and in him. So Jesus has just called himself God and the religious leaders that they want to kill him because of it. Because they say, hey, you being a man cannot declare yourself to be God. What they're saying is no man can be called God. And Jesus says, well, wait a second. Before you use that as your basis for throwing stones, let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to the law, because even in the law, you have men with this title of gods he says is it not written in your law i say you are gods now jesus is quoting from psalm 82 now the religious leaders the pharisees you know they were very familiar with the old testament they would have been very familiar with psalm 82 it's only eight verses but perhaps you're not as familiar with psalm 82 so let me read it to you real quick so we can kind of understand the context of what jesus is saying here when he quotes this psalm it says this God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk in darkness, and the foundations of the earth are unstable. I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. 
So here in uh, Psalm 82, God is referring to the judges of Israel, the men that he has put in a specific role to judge the nation of Israel as gods. And so he gives them this role. Now, the Hebrew word translated gods here is Elohim. That word means a mighty one who rules and judges. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the word Elohim is connected to the true God. Well, why? Well, because the true God, he rules and he judges and he's mighty. You know, all those three three things go very well with God. But here in Psalm 82, this word Elohim is used for these judges. Well, why? Because they're in a godlike role. Well, why is that? Well, because they're ruling and they're judging and they really have the power of life or death over people. And so that is a very godlike role. And so they kind of have this term gods because of it. Now, notice that in this psalm, we're also told that these judges who were called gods were very unjust. They show partiality, you know, and because of that, they're going to be judged like men. Why? Because they are men. They're not actually gods. They just have a title of Elohim because they're in this role of judgment and having power over life and death, but they have failed in the role that God has given them. They were supposed to judge righteously and justly, and they have not done that. And so what's going to be the consequence? The real true God is going to pour judgment on them because they're going to die like men because that is what they are. Now, the question is, why does Jesus reference this psalm when he said, it's written in your law, I said you are God's? Well, what he goes on to say kind of helps us understand why he is bringing this to the forefront for these religious leaders. Notice what he says in verse 35 and 36. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. So kind of notice the the argument here that, that Jesus is bringing. He's saying, hey, if God gave us these unjust judges and allowed them to have the title gods because of the role that he gave them as judges, it wasn't blasphemous for them to refer to themselves this way. It wasn't blasphemous for other people to refer to them this way then why do you consider it blasphemy that I call myself the Son of God in light of the clear role that God has given me that I have demonstrated very powerfully through the miraculous signs that I have done? You see, Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater, that if the lesser thing is true, then obviously the greater thing must be true as well. You know, if these unjust judges who are men can have this title God because of the role that they play that's God-like, surely, and, and they do it poorly. Like, you know, they have this role and they fail in this role. God has given them this and they don't do it. Jesus, the one that God gave a role and he fulfilled it. He's done what God has called him to do and is clearly seen in his works. I mean, surely if you can call these guys who are unjust men doing this God's Why is it blasphemous if I, the one who has clearly demonstrated that I have done what God has called me to do through the works that I've done, why is that blasphemous if I call myself God? And so Jesus is bringing up this argument to them because they already want to disassociate his words from his works. And so he said, fine, if that's not going to work, let me bring you back to the word of God, which... I'll use that argument to try to help you see, you know what, your your reasoning for stoning me is not a good one. Now, I want to make really clear before we move on here that Jesus is not declaring that men can become gods or all men are gods. It's very clear that these individuals are not gods, that they are men, and they're sinful men at that. They're unjust judges. They just have this title. 
So Jesus isn't declaring that. Psalm 82 isn't declaring that. And the reason I think it's important to note is because you might get a Mormon that comes to your door and they will come to a passage like this. This is one of their passages with Jesus or with Psalm 82. And they read that to you and they say, see, this is teaching that you can become a God. And then they'll go on to their Mormon teaching of, you know what, when you die, guess what you're going to get? Your own planet. And you're going to be a god to that planet. And you're going to have your many wives. And you're going to populate that planet. And that's just nonsense. That's not something the Bible teaches. That's not what, the, what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Psalm 82 is saying here. And so I just want you to be very clear. If you ever do encounter a Mormon uh, who comes to your door and brings this to your attention, you can help them see, no, actually within the context, that's not what's being said at all. And so Jesus starts the defense with, hey, you know what? My works and my words, they're connected. And so which work are you stoning me for? And then they try to get away from that. So Jesus brings them to the word of God to try to build his defense. And they're not really getting that either. So now he's coming back to his initial defense, the work and the word connected to each other so that they can understand the reason for why they shouldn't be stoning him. Notice what he says in verse 37 and 38. If I do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the father is in me and I in him. So if you guys are going to judge me just based on my works, don't do that. Look at my works. Do my works back up a godly thing? Are my works of God? You should be very clear that there's no way I could heal a blind man unless I was of God. You can look at my works and you can understand that my works are of God. So he's like, hey, don't just believe me for what I say. You might reject my words, fine, but look at my works. If my works are of God, then you must conclude that I am my father and my father in me, because that's the only way I could do this. And so he wants them to not disassociate one from the other, that I'm not just saying this stuff about myself. Everything that I'm doing is just a clear declaration of who I am. And so it's the audacity of these guys at the beginning of the conversation to even come and say, tell us plainly whether you're not the Messiah. It's like, what are you guys not watching? What are you guys not listening? I have been saying over and over that I'm the Messiah. But even more importantly, if you knew your Old Testament, you would know all the things that Messiah was going to do. And guess what? I've done them. So it should be so clear to you who I am. You don't want to believe not because there's not enough evidence. You don't want to believe not because of my works or my uh, words. You just don't want to believe, period. You're hard-hearted, and Jesus wants them to come back to this. And he's trying to help them. You know, if any of them will recognize, well, wait a second. Maybe we shouldn't move forward with this. Maybe we shouldn't try to kill him. He brings this defense to them. It's a very good defense. Well, let's see if it's changed any of their minds. And they kind of step back and say, well, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't do this. Well, let's see, verse 39. Therefore, they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. Well, once again, you know, we've seen many times over and over, they try to get Jesus in a catch-22, he gives an amazing answer. They say different things, Jesus gives wonderful responses. Here again, we see the situation where he gives a wonderful defense, a wonderful reason for why they shouldn't seek to kill him for claiming to be God, and yet... It doesn't change anything. They're once again seeking to seize him. They want to kill him. But remember, as we've seen so many times, it's not the first time they've tried to do this, but it is not the timing of God for Jesus to die. That timing is coming. We're actually going to get very quickly into the last week of Jesus's life. John's kind of broken up. Interestingly, the first 10 chapters are dealing with this long portion of Jesus's public ministry. There's 21 chapters in John and the last Half of John is really dealing with just one week of Jesus' life. 
So this is kind of one of the last things that Jesus does publicly. And he's trying to help these people see this, but it doesn't change their beliefs. But you know what? It wasn't God's timing. And so notice what we're told. He escaped out of their hands. They want to seize him. They want to kill him. There's many more of them than there is of Jesus. But you know what? It's not the time for Jesus to be crucified, to be killed. And so the father makes it possible for the son to once again escape what these guys are seeking to do. Well, now we come to the conclusion of this chapter with something very interesting about John the Baptist and his legacy. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and he stayed there. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. And so Jesus leaves Jerusalem He's been there at the temple. That's where this whole thing has been happening. And he goes to where John used to baptize, because remember, John is now dead, and so he's no longer baptizing. But where John's ministry started, in Bethany, Jesus heads there. That's about uh, 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Uh, and so Jesus goes there. And here's what I want you to note. We see something very interesting. This man who's no longer there has quite a legacy. And I want us to note the legacy that John the Baptist left behind. We're told that many people come to Jesus and notice what they say about John the Baptist. John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. So we have two things that are important to note about the legacy of John the Baptist. And the first thing that we note shouldn't surprise us. But the second thing of note is actually quite surprising. And let's start with the first thing that shouldn't surprise us. People say all things that John spoke about Jesus were true. Now, you know, we, we looked at John, especially in John chapter 1. We see lots of things that John the Baptist was saying about Jesus. They were very bold. They were things that, that were, you know, a lot of people I'm sure were like, well, I don't believe that. We see that this group here had yet to believe that because he was saying true things, but things that maybe people weren't quite ready to accept. And let's note some of those things. Back in John chapter 1, starting in verse 9, John the Baptist says some great things. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So John, he, 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 he gets it. He knows who Jesus is, and he's pointing, hey, behold, guys, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Look, the Son of God, there he is, right there. That was John's ministry, pointing people to the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ and what he was coming to do for the nation of Israel and for the world as a whole. John spent his life telling people about Jesus, spent his life pointing people to Jesus, and then many people heard the message. But maybe in an experience that you have had as well, you share that message, but not everyone accepts it. You share that message. Lots of people hear, but some just walk away. You don't know what they do with that. Well, John's died. 
He shared this message, and there were people who heard that message. They did not respond to it when they heard it from John, but they've remembered it. And now they have an encounter with the one that John told them about. Now they're seeing Jesus firsthand, and they conclude all the things that John told us about Jesus were true. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the Son of God. We have now come to the conclusion that the message that John preached to us was true. And notice what verse 42 tells us, and many believed in Jesus. What a wonderful legacy for John. That you know what? It can be frustrating to share the gospel and someone doesn't respond. And maybe he's thinking, you know, oh, there's been multitudes of people who I've declared this to, and many have walked away. Many haven't responded. But you know what? His legacy didn't end with his, you know, message or his death. It's gone beyond that. That people are still alive who have heard that message. The Lord is still working in them. And now they come and they meet the one that John has spoken about. And they're open to him now. They're receptive to Jesus now. And many of them accept Jesus for who he is and get saved. And it's notice it's coming back to the message of John the Baptist that he declared to these people that prepared them to ultimately accept Christ. So the first part of John the Baptist's legacy is he shares about Jesus. He points people to Jesus. And once those people met Jesus, they realized that what John told them about Jesus was true. Now, the second part about John's legacy is really something that you wouldn't expect. Someone that was used this powerfully, someone that really was kind of a miraculous birth in himself where his mom couldn't get pregnant and, you know, she's given the ability to have him and you know there's all these things that god does through his life but you know what there's something he doesn't do notice what people say about john john performed no sign speaking of a miraculous sign through his whole ministry not once did god choose to say you know what i'm going to do some miraculous sign through john i mean jesus has done miraculous signs all the time but yet john didn't even do one now, it's important for us to note that it's up to God as to whether or not he's going to do a miraculous sign through us. And so God has chosen not to do that through John. But you know what? God did give John a miraculous message, a message that would miraculously change lives, that people could go from darkness to light, that they could go from eternity and damnation in hell to eternity in heaven with God. He gave him a message that was so important to prepare people for Jesus. And I think it's important for us to recognize that same message, the gospel message, that's a message that God has called us to proclaim. But it's a miraculous message. It's a message full of power. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? But it's the power of God unto salvation. I realize the power it has. I realize it's the one message that can change someone's life for all eternity. And that's the message that John, that's the message that we have to declare. And you know what? I want to encourage you with this. You don't have to have God do miraculous signs and wonders through your life in order for you to be able to share the gospel. That's not a prerequisite. You know, we look through the book of Acts and we see a lot of times miracles happening and then the gospel going out. And, you know, it's great. Oftentimes those miracles open people up to the good news of the gospel. But that is not a necessary thing. It's not something that has to happen in order for us to declare the gospel. John never did one miraculous sign, yet he was faithful to preach a message 
that impacted people while he was alive and also impacted people beyond his death. I think we need to realize that, you know what? God can use us to reach people with the gospel. God can use us and, and give us an impactful legacy, even if he chooses not to do a miraculous sign. Because once again, that's not on us. I'm sure all of us would love to say, yes, God, do something miraculous through my life. I'd love to be used in, in these ways that I read of Elisha and Elijah and Peter and Paul and so on and so forth. Yeah, that, that would be great. But don't come to the conclusion that, you know what, I can't really have a legacy without that. Don't come to the conclusion I can't make an impact without that. Don't come to the conclusion that I can't reach people with the gospel without that. Because John is a clear example of, well, actually, if God chooses not to do some miraculous sign and wonder, it doesn't mean that you can't have an important life, a important calling, an important legacy, an important impact. Because remember, Jesus, when he's speaking about people, he gives the greatest praise of all to John the Baptist. There's no one greater than him. But he never did one miracle. How can you put him in that category? Because it's not about that. He was faithful to his calling and he did, made, uh, did wonderful things for the Lord and many people came to Jesus because of him. You know, our job is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That message has the power to save people. But you know what? You don't have control over whether or not God does miracles in your life, but you do have control over whether or not you're willing to share the gospel. You have control over the miraculous message. You don't have control over whether before it there's some miracle coming through your life. You can pray for miracles. You can ask God to do it. I'm not saying that's a bad thing in any way, shape, or form. Great. If he chooses not to, still proclaim the gospel. Still proclaim the miraculous message because that is the message that can change lives. You know, I think this shows us the place of miracles in the normal Christian life. Sometimes we get all down, if God doesn't do this, then, then what is my life? What's the value of my life? You know what? John had high character with no miracles. He had a special calling with no miracles. He had a deep and lasting influence with no miracles. But it may be the most important, he had the wonderful praise of the Father, even with no miracles. God looked at his life and said, man, this is a wonderful life. This is someone who's done great things for me. You just be faithful with what I called you to do. I'm the one responsible for whether I'm going to add miracles to it. You know, that's not even, you know, your responsibility. You just do what I've called you to do. And guess what? Every believer has been called to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. George Morrison wrote this. We are so apt to think that special service is only given to special people, that great tasks are only for common folk, but for men of wonder-working gifts. And the beautiful lesson of our text is this that though you may have no power to do a miracle, for you too, there's a special service. God for each has a special work to do. I want to encourage you with that. Recognize that. You have a special work. God has a plan for you. And it's not just connected with whether or not some supernatural, miraculous thing happens. He wants to use you. One of the greatest things he can use you in is sharing the life-changing message of the gospel. You know, we live in a world where many people have rejected that Jesus is God. And as we started, I want to finish with just remembering that reality that they want to be the authority over their life. They want to be the one who establishes the standard over their life. They want to be the one who determines how they enter into eternity. And it's really not by the acceptance of Jesus, but by their own acceptance. But the problem is they're living a lie that's leading them to hell. 
And we are the ones who have the message that they desperately need to hear that, no, Jesus is God. You can't be the God of your own life. He's the one who truly has the authority. He's the one who's established the standard for what is right and wrong. And he is the one who's declared that there is only one way to be saved, and that is through him. And all the other things that people claim, all the other ways that people say, all the other roads that people declare, none of them will get you to him and salvation in heaven. John is a great example of someone willing to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus. And my challenge to you and my challenge to myself is let's be like him. And let's have a legacy that goes beyond our life that people are still listening and remembering the good news that we shared with them. And perhaps you share it with them now and they don't accept it. And one day you die and they're still living. And just like with John, they come and they say, you know what? Everything that you told me about Jesus was true. And now I'm at the point in my life where I'm willing to accept it. And they come to know him. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you are God. But not just any God, you are the God of love. You are the God who came down to become one of us. You're the God who lived that perfect life that none of us could. You're the God who loved us enough that you willingly went to a cross. You took our sin upon yourself. You died in our place. You took the judgment that we deserve. And then three days later, you rose from the dead to conquer sin and conquer death. 